Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. Hello. I'm Dr. Narjas Duma, a thoracic medical oncologist and the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, also a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Today, we will be discussing a very important subject, smoking sensation and how to honor the need for a smoking sensation, counseling without contributing to a stigma. Smoking tobacco products, primarily cigarettes, is an important risk factor for the development of lung cancer. Secondhand smoke is also a significant cause of lung cancer. Worldwide, smoking accounts for approximately two-thirds of lung cancer cases, with the remaining occurring due to other causes. We have three very special guests today. First, we have Dr. Jamie Ostroff. Dr. Ostroff is the Joseph Kamot Chair of Cancer Prevention and the Director of the Memorial Sloan Catherine Tobacco Treatment Program. Dr. Ostroff is a clinical health psychologist with expertise in helping patients and their families cope with the challenges of cancer diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Welcome, Dr. Ostroff. Thank you. We also welcome Dr. Matthew Esteliga, Associate Professor in Surgery at the University of Arkansas Medical Center, a member and past chair of the ILCLC Tobacco Control and a Smoking Sensation Committee, and a researcher in preoperative smoking sensation and the integration of smoking sensation and lung cancer screening. Welcome, Dr. Staliga. Thank you. We also have Mr. Jean Pantelas, a patient advocate and activist. Jean has worked hard since his cancer diagnosis to change the experience of patients with lung cancer and confront the stigma associated with the disease. He collaborates with organizations like the GoTo Foundation. Welcome, Jim. Good morning. In patients with a history of current use of tobacco at the time of lung cancer diagnosis, a smoking sensation has been associated with improved survival and better tolerability to therapy. Matt, can you share with your audience the benefits of smoking sensation at the time of lung cancer diagnosis? Thank you. Certainly, there's a lot of reasons that patients should quit smoking, even after diagnosed with cancer. It's been shown that cancer patients may live longer if they quit smoking, and that can improve outcomes, whether they're being treated with surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. Some people might feel, oh, it's too late. I already have cancer. But there's a host of benefits, decreased respiratory infections, less cardiovascular or or heart type risks, and overall patient's health is impacted in many, many ways. So there's a lot of benefit for quitting at any time. Thank you, Matthew, for adding that. And I think it's very important to have conversations about smoking sensation at the time of diagnosis and after. Jim and Jamie, would you like to add anything? You go, Jim. Okay. I would just add that it's important to have this conversation at the time of diagnosis, but to have it in an honest manner and to address it as a mitigating factor. It's too late to prevent the cancer. And I, for one, have a real problem with the term prevention when it comes to smoking cessation and lung cancer. 
But to talk about how much it is, it truly is mitigating in how your body will respond to the treatments, how your body will heal from the, from the operation that you face, and how it will affect the rest of your organs as they struggle to keep up with chemotherapy. Thanks. Yeah, so I'll just add to that is um, I'm in full agreement, and I would say I realize this is a podcast of lung cancer considered, but this statement is true, not just for patients with lung cancer, but for all patients that are diagnosed with cancer who struggle with tobacco dependence. Another way of thinking about this is that tobacco use is a modifiable risk factor. So in this age of precision oncology, when we find a risk that we can mitigate, We want our treatments, including our tobacco treatments, to provide hope and and empower patients to be active participants in their care, realizing that tobacco cessation confers many benefits for patients diagnosed with cancer. Thank you to the three of you for your very important input. The three of you bring knowledge and expertise in several areas that complement the importance of smoking sensation. During the initial evaluation for lung cancer and subsequent discussions about smoking sensation, providers should establish good communication that adequately assess the patient's goals and understand it. Patient preferences and capabilities vary significantly when it comes to a smoking sensation and what tools they have available and what they're willing to try. These discussions should not fit into the stigma associated with the disease and smoking. Jamie, could you share with our audience the adequate way in which providers should discuss smoking sensation with patients and what do you do at the Tobacco Center program? Sure, that's a great question. I'll I'll start by saying that you know that all the leading cancer organizations including ISLAC will say that integrating tobacco treatment, evidence-based tobacco treatment is good high-quality cancer care. And so what that means is we should think about tobacco treatment in the same way we think about pain, nutrition, palliative care. They are part and parcel of high-quality cancer care. So that said, we have guidelines for what works. The general sense of the guidelines is that smoking status should be assessed for all patients, that patients who report current smoking should be advised to quit, And, and this is really important, they should be offered empathic, effective cessation support to be successful in their smoke-free journey. At MSK, I'd like to say that we've baked in tobacco treatment into our workflow, into our staff training, into our clinical documentation, because the goal is essentially that tobacco use is core data element in cancer treatment. And once our clinicians identify individuals struggling with tobacco dependence, the clinical workflow, our clinical guideline is for them to advise quitting. And then in our setting, we have tobacco treatment special, not just our setting, but many, many models across the country will have the advantage of either um, having an embedded tobacco treatment specialist available for their patients or a affiliated tobacco treatment service program as part of their health system. And these referral model, often called the ask, advise, and refer model, 
is both effective and efficient, enabling the oncology care team to to have a team approach in treating tobacco dependence. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jamie. I think it's very important that all staff, like you mentioned, are trained in the appropriate way to counsel and the appropriate way to address. And I think this is important not only for the staff, but also for the next generation of physicians, medical students, residents, because this is a discussion that can happen in any setting. As we go ahead, Jamie. Thing I was going to add is, you know, these are these are really important discussions that we have with patients because while we have evidence and guidelines of what works, the art of this is in the relationship that you build with the patient because ultimately the goal is to offer patients options for tobacco treatment and to come to a consensus or what we might call a shared decision-making about a tobacco treatment plan. So I, you know, this is the nuance of this. We know what works, but all good oncology clinicians know that the art is in presenting the rationale to the patient and then actively engaging them in decision about treatment making, treatment decision making, in this case, tobacco treatment. Thank you. And as we continue to talk about the discussions about the smoking sensation, it's important to mention that this can happen anytime during our patient's journey, including during early phases of diagnosis and treatment. Matt, you have conducted research in this area, particularly in the perioperative setting and during lung cancer screening. Can you share with us your findings and practices in these particular settings? Well, thank you. Me and my group at University of Arkansas has worked quite a bit on integrating smoking cessation in our clinical workflow over the last eight years here. And it's, it's evolved and we've learned a lot. We first started offering cessation services to patients with a brief recommendation or, or a handout. We found that while the referral services like 1-800-QUIT-NOW, they are fantastic. They work. There's evidence showing that they can help people, but patients need to call. And oftentimes we found that those patients weren't following up with that. I remember a turning point for me was when I noticed the garbage can in my, my clinic workspace had a lot of those pamphlets in it. And I realized they weren't even getting home. So we needed to do something different. We obtained certified tobacco treatment specialist training for our clinic work staff. I went through it myself. Our nurse practitioners, nurses did as well and integrated that in our clinic workflow. Why is this important? Well, we found that over 60% of those coming to our office for a chest-related surgical problem were smoking. Most of them understood it was detrimental to their health, and most of them wanted to quit and had tried to quit, but been unsuccessful. So we identified a need and a gap. And then by counseling the patient right there, At the time, we found it was very well accepted. Rather than being discarded or or phone number not being called, we were able to counsel over 95% of those patients. A few people declined. And of course, we respect that if they don't want to talk about it. But most everybody accepted that. And we were able to demonstrate of those who were smoking, unable to quit, we could get over two-thirds, 68% were we're able to quit on last follow-up after surgery. And that's a big turning point. And so I'm glad we could help patients with that. We've also found 
that when we started to introduce this program, we would tell patients, you know, if you'd like to talk to somebody, we have someone who can speak with you today. When it was offered as an optional service, about half of people turned it down. When we framed it as an opt-out presentation, dear Mr. Jones, you know, good to see you today. We're loading your CT scans. We're going to review that. I've got to take a look at some of these records. I'll be back in a few minutes. While you're waiting, one of our team members is going to talk to you about tobacco cessation and how that's an important part of your treatment, if that's okay with you. When we framed it as an opt-out intervention, nearly 100% of people agreed to the counseling and the presentation. So, so we found that opt-out rather than opt-in is very well accepted, and we found that point of care is well accepted. We've also moved out of just the surgical clinic of patients who need surgery to a lung screening program. Now, lung screening is done uh, in patients who've smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years or the equivalent. And some of those patients have quit by now, but many of them are still smoking and many want to quit. When we reviewed our lung screening data, we found about 1.8% of those a little less than, you know, one out of 50 people may have a lung cancer. Great. We're finding the cancer that's there. But that doesn't mean that that other 98% is totally healthy without any changeable, modifiable risk factors. We found that 71% of those coming for lung cancer screening, wanting to make a healthy change for their life, nearly three-fourths of them were still smoking and unable to quit. Wow. That's, uh, we're screening for lung cancer and we're finding a little lung cancer. Great. It's working. But what we have is a really large motivated population of people trying to make changes for their health and they're coming in. And, and we were able to counsel those patients too at the point of care, which was really well accepted and taken. So I could go on and on and on about this. I'll say basically we've learned opt out works better than opt in point of care helps reach the patients where they're at. And training all of our staff makes everybody realize it's part of everybody's job because it's part of everybody's goal. Thank you, Matt, for sharing that with us. And I really like the part when you ended that all staff was trained because this is all our responsibility. And I think it's extremely important. We work with several members in the hospital and sometimes patients feel more comfortable talking with other staff members than with us, that, you know, we dictate treatment and next steps. So having old staff trained is important, not only for the smoking sensation, but I think the stigma associated as well. Jim, you have a very unique perspective and experience when it comes to lung cancer. Unfortunately, at age 26, you lost your father to small cell lung cancer. And years later, you were diagnosed with lung cancer requiring a large surgical resection and subsequent systemic therapy. What was your experience during your lung cancer diagnosis and treatment and how you faced the stigma associated with the disease? Now, just I think that everybody that gets a diagnosis of lung cancer faces the stigma associated with and the association with tobacco use and lung cancer. When my father died, as an example, multiple people at his funeral nodded and shook their head as they gave their condolences and said, 
well, he smoked for his whole life. When I got diagnosed, the first question out of most people's mouths that didn't know me would be to ask about my smoking history. I don't think that we ask any other cancer patients about their complicity with their cancer the way that we do lung cancer patients. I think one of the things that that becomes an issue is that prior to a diagnosis, most of your experience as a tobacco user with clinicians is in having them lecture you. I think one of the one of the difficult parts of that lecture is when the diagnosis finally comes, even if you quit years ago, a lot of primary care physicians will continue to remind you that you smoked and you knew this was coming. In a way, what Matt talked about with talking about cessation during the lung cancer screening programs and at diagnosis is probably the first time that most patients will talk to somebody that understands cessation and doesn't treat tobacco as a habit, but as an addiction. I can't stress enough how important it is to have that conversation or to begin that conversation with a cessation professional during the screening programs. Most of the people that I know that smoked or smoke have tried to quit on numerous occasions. I spent probably 20 years trying to quit before I managed to to accomplish it. And to this day, I still, in my dreams, I'm still a smoker. So, and I know that that's the wrong term to use, but it's the one I grew up with. Honestly, in my dreams, I'm still smoking cigarettes. So it's very difficult to quit. And it's very difficult to have honest conversations with a lot of people in healthcare until you meet a cessation professional. Thank you, Jean, for sharing that very personal insight and how difficult smoking cessation can be for our patients and that we need to understand that. Along those lines, effective smoking cessation treatments can double or triple a person's chances of quitting successfully. And new treatment innovations that further boost quiet rates continue to emerge in the literature. But such treatments are infrequently provided to patients as part of their cancer care. What are some of the reasons we continue to have so optimal rates of smoking sensation counseling in our cancer clinics? I will start with Matt and then follow by Jim. Oh, I, I think there's a host of reasons that there's suboptimal uh, rates of cessation. It's not a flashy topic and it's a difficult topic. Sometimes when we try to get people to quit, we can fail and we don't like doing things that are prone to not work every single time. So I think it's difficult to get everybody to quit. And there's lots of different pathways. We have found evidence-based guidelines that work though, and we need to use them. I think another part of it is there's a stigma against tobacco use. And that carries into less support, either from patients or families or even systems or programs or infrastructure. And there's a stigma against tobacco. Jim, you earlier said it's not a habit, it's an addiction. And you, and you made that distinction. And I'm really glad you mentioned that. I've heard that from so many patients. It's, and we really have to acknowledge that this is something we need to help 
all of our patients overcome. Some of the reasons I think we have suboptimal rates is stigma against tobacco, less support for it. Of course, it, it is not quite as flashy as the newest novel drug and treatment. But you know, there's been research published that showed in a cancer population of lung cancer patients who've already been diagnosed, lung cancer of all stages, they looked at those who quit versus those who did not. And there was a nine-month survival difference. Nine months of added time. If that was a drug, we'd be giving it. If that was a radiation treatment, that'd be standard of care. But we don't push forward enough how important this is. So I think that suboptimal rates exist because of stigma. It exists because there may not be as much funding for it. It might not be as flashy of a topic, but it is so important to each and every patient. And some of the patients who've struggled with quitting, and then they come in, and then they're able to abstain from tobacco, and they notice their breathing gets better. They notice some health benefits. It's a real victory for them. Jim, just recapitulating the question, what are your thoughts? I think that when you're dealing with people that are recently diagnosed, they're in the most stressful time of their life. And you're asking them to quit something that brings them comfort. You're also asking them to, in many ways, abandon their support network. Smokers are already ostracized in society. They take breaks at work and go outside and smoke. They leave the table at restaurants to go outside and smoke. And they typically do that in groups. Now you're asking someone that's just gotten diagnosed, thinks their world is coming to an end, knows their world as they know it is coming to an end, and you're talking to them about not participating socially with those people that they're used to participating with. It changes their relationships with those people. It's just an incredibly stressful time. And they're being ostracized in many instances by the people around them that don't use tobacco because those people are constantly pointing out to them that they brought it on themselves. If I can just make one point to what Matt said, I think that some of the statistics around survivorship may be skewed by the nihilism associated with lung cancer as well. There are many people that when they get a diagnosis, if they haven't had a cigarette in many years, consider starting to smoke again. I think it's important to have these conversations with people that currently use tobacco, as well as those that used to use tobacco, because the likelihood of them picking up a pack of cigarettes again is increased with the stress that comes with the diagnosis. I hope that helps. Thank you, Jean, for providing your perspective. As we continue to talk about this important subject, in 2019, we learned about the NCI Moonshot Program to help oncology patients with a smoking sensation, known as the Cancer Center Sensation Initiative, or C3I, which was designated to use implementation science to jumpstart smoking sensation treatments at NCI-designated cancer centers. This program provided funding for these Jumpstart programs. Jamie, since the initiation of this program, have you seen any differences in the number of patients referred to a smoking sensation 
and how this issue has been addressed nationally. Yeah, sure. I'm really glad you brought this up because the C3I initiative has truly been wind in the sails of individuals who have known and advocated for integration of tobacco treatment for routine cancer care. And so, as you said, you know, through the cancer center, the mechanism, cancer centers applied and were awarded grants to to do sort of just exactly what Matt did at Arkansas. Look at what they were doing, listen to their provider and patients, learn about what works, and then repeat the cycle again. So with the idea of starting wherever centers were at, these funded, I think there's 52 centers now that have received C3I Moonshot monies, have been dedicated to the studying and advancing and sharing resources about how evidence-based cessation treatment can be integral part of the care of every patient who smokes. And I think what's, you know, a couple things I want to say about this is that, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And there is a tremendous momentum in the resource sharing and the, the networking and the generosity of sharing best practices among this group. I would refer your listeners to a special issue of the JNCCN published in November of just last year, where a series of position papers from the C3I, as well as the five working groups on telehealth, diversity, equity, and inclusion, family, implementation science, and sustainability, all wrote basically state of the art, state of the field, and gaps in knowledge and recommendations for innovation and clinical care. And I think I would really recommend that paper, as well as a really great paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019 that talks about tobacco treatment being a pillar of cancer care. And I would, you know, certainly with enthusiasm, recommend those resources to your listeners. Thank you, Jamie. For sharing that with us, I was previously at the University of Wisconsin and I saw how then as the primary organizing side move all the resources to help institutions develop programs or just continue programs that were lacking funding. Go ahead. Yeah, I, was just, I was just going to say is this is really an answer where we knew that, you know, together we could share resources and that, you know, moonshot, but jumpstart in terms of raising the you know, rising all boats so that tobacco treatment becomes a routine part, a transformative part of routine cancer care. Thank you. As we just mentioned before, providers often don't get training in how to disclose a smoking sensation in an appropriate way. I personally go training about the dangers of smoking, but know how to approach patients. What this means is sometimes patients are faced with a stigma or the wrong questions by their providers. So for the three of you, what are your top three actions that providers should take while discussing a smoking sensation? I'm going to start with Jim. I would urge providers to talk about all of the risk factors associated with cancers and heart disease, but to talk about how strong a mitigating factor cessation is, and to talk about how it changes outcomes, even though 
you might be having that conversation after someone's already been diagnosed. It will affect how their body metabolizes the drugs that they're given. It will affect how their body recovers from the surgeries that they go through. And talking about it, talking about tobacco cessation as a mitigating factor is far less blaming and a lot more understandable to a patient. I think you can do that at all levels, from the primary care physician level up through the specialist, the oncologist, the surgeons. Thank you, Jim. And I think it's important that you mentioned from the primary care providers up. Jamie, what are your top three actions that providers should take when discussing a smoking sensation? Sure. So, you know, what I love about this question is we've talked about the why it's important, the who should do it, when it should be done, what the guidelines tell us. But I think that we don't give enough attention to the how. And I, that's what I love about your question. So my first comment is, you know, discussing smoking cessation need not be a painful medical procedure. You know, we, we in oncology are certainly used to sensitive topics and difficult challenges. And so here are sort of three things, three, you know, simple things that I think can be takeaways. One is, I think it's important that before you ask about a smoking history, that you give what I often call a warning shot, you know, where you essentially say, next, I want to ask you some questions about a topic that is a sensitive topic. And then the second recommendation would be that you, that you, that you provide the rationale for why you're asking about tobacco use. Without a rationale, it is so easy for patients to feel singled out, stigmatized, blamed. But if you say up front, you know, as I suspect, you know, as Matt really described as normal and routine in his practice about why it's important to ask that we have treatments and that it's a modifiable part of their treatment, I think it really goes a very long way in building relationship, you know, for and reducing stigma. And my third recommendation is that essentially None of our patients need for us to beat the drum that smoking is bad. They all know that. And so we should approach our patients not with blame, not with shame, but with offers of help. And that help should be readily available, normalized that it's offered to all patients struggling with tobacco dependence and delivered by individuals who understand both the psychological dependence on smoking as well as the physical addiction to nicotine. Thank you, Jamie. And Matt, what are your top three actions that providers should take in regarding smoking sensation? Thank you. I wrote down these three earlier, and some of it echoes uh, what we've already heard. But I think three things that all providers should do is first, the language we use. We have to I learned a lot from going through uh, tobacco treatment specialist training, but one thing that I really took home was a motivational interviewing strategy. So what we should do is we should not tell people what they already know. Hmm. You know, smoking is bad for you. You know, it's hard to quit. You know, if you keep smoking, things could get worse. Like don't tell people things they already know. Okay. And along with that positive works better than negative. If you're able to quit, you might breathe better. Okay. If you're able to quit, you may get through surgery safer without uh, as much risk of breathing problems or respiratory complications. So don't tell people things they already know. 
and channel positive improvements. And along with a series of questions, we can guide people towards making it their goal. So in addition to kind of supporting people and and being there for them and helping them, we have to make this their goal. You know, we can't say, you need to quit smoking. Uh -uh. We can ask people what they've tried before or what they haven't, if they think it would be possible for them. And then when they move towards a point where they say, yeah, I'd like to quit smoking, then we help them. But it has to be their goal. It can't be an extrinsic goal that's, that's outside pushed upon them. That just adds more stress without support. So by making it the patient's goal, and it's really good if we can individualize that as much as possible. Oh, you know, you're going to be getting chemotherapy in the future. You know, there is some interaction with smoking and such and such chemo drug. Or, you know, you told me you like to go fishing with your grandkids. Well, you know, you might have better breathing and more energy you know, if we get rid of the cigarettes. Or you talked about how parking and transportation was getting costly. I'm sure cigarettes are costly too. And like, so we can try to make it their goal, but not our goal. And finally, I think one thing that all providers need, and this goes along without, with the point of no judgment, is we need to realize we're there to help people. No judgment. We need empathy and we need to understand that if the patient is unable to quit, it's not an intentional choice that they are doing to frustrate us. So if we are frustrated as a nurse or nurse practitioner or physician or other provider, we can't be frustrated with the patient, that we have empathy for them and their struggle and their difficulty. If we do have frustration, well, geez, let's channel that towards the tobacco industry. Let's put that frustration to work again, you know, in policy or advocacy or getting, you know, in contact with legislators about the tobacco industry. But we cannot have judgment or frustration against our patients because they're not on the opposite side. They're on our side. We're on their side. We have to work with them for those common goals together. Thank you, Matt, for sharing that. We have so much to talk about, but unfortunately, we're about to run out of time. So I have two more questions for um, our guest. One of them is about the ISLC language guide. This document provides investigators, providers, patient advocates with instructions to use language that is respectful, free of stigma, inclusive, and equitable when talking about patients with lung cancer and smoking sensation. The language of respect mentions that providers who use the phrase patient, person, we acted or former tobacco use instead of smoker. To Jim and Jamie, why is this important? I will start with you, Jim. One of the jokes is that, is that you smoke meat and you use a smoker to smoke meat. People are people. We're not calling somebody a smoker relegates them to a status that is diminishing. I love the language guide that Jill and IASLC came up with. I think it's really helpful. I, as a former tobacco user, still have difficulty changing my dialogue, but I'm getting better at it. I think we all need to get better at it because it's calling someone a smoker is a shortcut and it plays into the stigma associated with the disease. Jamie? Yeah, I'll just add that what I've come to realize, particularly in my partnership with 
advocates such as Jim and Jill and others responsible for the Slack language guide is that, you know, words matter. And these are these phrases that we use are part of our training. Old habits do die hard in terms of some of the terms we use, but the language guide really raises our awareness about empathic, individualized language that is inclusive and equitable. And early on in my career, I remember when, you know, we used to say phrases like AIDS patient. And, you know, you sort of get a sense that, you know, what image does that evoke? And what I would really say is that when we switched over to person living with HIV AIDS, yes, it was longer. Yes, we had to change our writing and our speaking, and we had to be more deliberate and intentional. But it is clearly a more respectful, empathic, and humanizing way to refer to people who are much more than an addiction. So they are, you know, they are a person who reports current smoking rather than a current smoker, for instance. Thank you, Jamie. And my last question to three of you is, we keep talking about the lack of training for many of us. Where can providers get additional information and training in this area? I will start with Matt and then Jamie and then Jim. There is lots of uh, resources available in person or online. Years ago, I traveled to Minnesota to the Mayo Clinic for a, a certified tobacco treatment workshop. It was a four and a half day long program, but these kinds of things can be done online now or with video conferences that are done through multiple places, not only you know, cutting out travel, but also uh, cutting out the cost uh, as well. Sometimes we also bring training programs into our center to do group trainings with people. So I think that there's lots of different options. I know Jamie has a lot of connections with tobacco training programs, and I'll, I'll kind of defer to her to explain maybe some of the resources that she's put together. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'll just uh, build on your comment is that there are now 25 certified tobacco treatment training programs across the country. And yes, most of them are now virtual training and they are designed to train any clinician to follow best practices in tobacco treatment. And again, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe we can send out a link to some of those resources for your listeners. Another resource I want to mention is about five years ago, we received funding from the National Cancer Institute to do a shorter two-day training focusing specifically on, on how to integrate tobacco treatment into oncology care. And we've now trained some 250 multidisciplinary clinicians across the country in, with didactics and small group exercises using simulated patients. And, um, and again, we published some of that work in cancer last year, and I'd be glad to, to share some of those resources. I mean, I think, I think training is really key. We don't do what we don't know, what we don't feel comfortable doing. And so if I were to say one thing that listeners might consider is that one or more people from your team seek additional training in tobacco treat treatment and its application for cancer care delivery. Thank you, Jamie. And Jim, do you have any places where patients or providers that you would recommend for them to go? I don't have any specific places. I would tell you that I was diagnosed 16 years ago in one of the country's first multidisciplinary clinics. And at that time, 
I met with an oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a thoracic surgeon, and a, a nurse that held everything together. That clinic that I was treated at now incorporates palliative care, smoking cessation, and the like. And one of the things that they do that I think is of significance is that they ask people how they want to talk about cessation. And I think that the cessation programs that I've seen that seem to work best deal with tobacco users as individuals and understand that there isn't one cessation method that works for everybody, but that some programs work better for some populations and including the patient in deciding which road to go down and which methods to use and why some methods might work better for them is essential. Thank you, Jim. And there is so much more to talk about, but we are about out of time. And I would like to thank everyone for listening. And I would like to especially thank Dr. Ostrov, Dr. Esteliga, and Mr. Pantelas for making the time to join us today. Any final thoughts? I just really appreciate that you invited us. I think this is a really important topic. And cessation is vital, but how we have the conversations with patients is also vital. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jim. Jamie, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'll also add my thanks for not just having this podcast, but the, the focusing on, on how we can make a difference. It, it feels like really a sea change in the way we talk about tobacco and cancer beyond epidemiology, beyond a risk factor, but is actually something that we as clinicians can do to help support our patients in their treatment and survivorship. Thank you. And Matt? Uh, any final thoughts I'd have for patients or families would be to know that, that you can quit. It, it is possible, but setbacks are common and that is not a failure. It's just part of the process. And knowing that any effort towards quitting is uh, beneficial and helpful and that there is support out there for people. And if things don't work on the first or second attempt, it is still effective to work with experts and, and try uh, different strategies. And final thoughts for care providers or administrators or people making decisions. This is an important part of our care. My goal as a surgeon isn't just to get a cancer out and make a specimen and get good margins and remove a few lymph nodes. My goal is to help all my patients live longer, better lives. And if they're struggling with the difficulty of quitting an addiction, it's part of our goal to help them with the best resources we have. So I, I think if anybody like, like a surgeon who focuses on one little area can learn about uh, cessation programs and integrate that into their care, uh, I think anybody can. Thank you. And this is, that's it for this episode on Cancer Considered. We hope that you will tune in the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. You can engage with us on Twitter at ISLC or our website, ISLC.org. Thank you, everyone, and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, 
islc.org and our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.